My name is, is Sam Kastensmith. I've preached here a few times. I'm now the headmaster over at Bethany Christian, and it's always such an awesome privilege to get to preach. You know, when I when you preach, it kind of forces you to really, really, really do some deeper devotion so that you don't look like a total goofball when you get up in front of a bunch of people in hopes that that doesn't happen anyway. But anyway, as I've been going through this passage and digging deeper and deeper and deeper into the book of Acts, I can't... I can't tell you how beautiful our Savior is. And as I'm going through this book of Acts, I'm starting to see that that the way I see my faith has been really healthy, but it's been really incomplete and missing a lot of power. And as I've gone through the book of Acts and kind of thought about this and talked about this with, with Laura and some of the other people, this theme of resurrection and the power of Christ's resurrection, and not only that, but His exaltation and who He is right now on your behalf. Man, that that changes things. It makes me want to be bold. It makes me want to live with open hands and not clinging to all the petty things of this life that so often make me miserable because I can't get enough of it. And I tell you, you know, preparing this sermon in this past week with a two-year-old and a four-year-old has been quite a challenge. We've decided for the first time we've had them in separate rooms when they go to bed. And starting on Friday night, Laura and I, my wife, Laura and I, have decided, well, we're going to put them in the same room. This is a good idea. You know, they're getting to that age. They can share a room that will open up an office for me. So, selfish motivation... So we put them into the same room, and Friday night was a night of utter misery. <laughs> Every minute, I was going to say two minutes, but that would be generous. Every minute, Laura is getting up and going in there, Jacob, get in bed. Jacob, get in bed. And then you hear like a massive against the wall, and then you hear giggling, and then you hear, and it's like, So at about 11 o'clock, 10 or 11 o'clock, my wife reaching the end of her desperation goes to the army of moms on Facebook and says, what do you do? Like, how do you get kids, young kids to sleep together in the same room? And so we're flooded with all kinds of suggestions from from the sarcastic, give them NyQuil, (laughs) which, you know, that had my vote. To, you know, some really like fun things like special types of pillows and chamomile tea and, you know, running them around before bedtime and all these kinds of things. And so everything we tried last night didn't work and eventually they went to bed from exhaustion. But yeah, last night, running out of time preparing for my sermon, we decided, you know what, just leave the door open, put them in the same room and we'll go at it. And then I started practicing my sermon on Laura. So be warned, be warned. Now today, it's, it's a really powerful, powerful, powerful passage. And it leaves you asking the question, when you read the Gospels, you find that the apostles are a total mess. You've got them questioning everything. You've got them fearful of just about everything. You've got some of them claiming to be bold, but like Peter, they scatter. They have no boldness. They have no courage. They're competing for favor and who's going to get the most glory in heaven. And then Jesus' death comes and the whole church goes into despair. They're all absolutely desperate, feeling like everything has been lost. And on the third day after his death, the resurrection happens. And then the guys were reading about an Acts. The same guys that in the Gospels were kind of bumbling goofballs who didn't get it all of a sudden become these giants of the faith who are willing to take scourging and crucifixion and lay down everything that they have, eager to lay down everything they have for the sake of Christ. And in a day, the apostles are radically transformed, and it's because of the power of the resurrection. So, I have a question for you. Suppose I had a check, 
And this check was made out for $3 billion. Now, I want you to follow me. I have a check. It's made out to $3 billion. And I come up to you and I say, do you want this? What are you willing to give me in exchange for my personal post-dated check of $3 billion? How many of you in here would give me your car for my personal check of three? <laughs> you must have a really bad car. Well, I know you have a really bad car. <clears throat> but the bottom line is, if I gave you a check for $3 billion, would you run out of here and change your budget? Would you go out and get a new mortgage? Would you tithe $300 million on the spot? No. Because if you're sane, you know that my bank account is not even in the same vicinity of $3 billion. And if you know my salary, you pity me. (laughs) I'm kidding. I'm grateful. But anyway, you would never go out and change your budget. You would never go out and get a new mortgage. You would never go out and do all these crazy things. But what if that check cleared? How immediately and radically would your life change if a $3 billion check cleared? Now I'm guessing you're going to change your budget. Now I'm guessing you're going to live a little bit more radically. Now I'm guessing that you're going to feel as though your worth has just gone up quite a bit and you're going to live like it. Well, the same is true of the death and resurrection of Christ. You know, at the crucifixion, Jesus goes to the cross and He's made all these incredible promises and taught all these incredible things during His life. He has told them that they will go to glory. He has told them that they will be made spotless in the sight of God. He has told them that the Spirit will be poured out upon them and that they'll do greater things than He did. And when yet He is put into the tomb, they despair. It's like, It's like they had this promissory note of everything that Jesus had ever said. This is everything that's going to be done for you. And he goes to the cross and they see him beaten, battered, whipped, crucified, dead. And they despair. Until Sunday morning. Because Sunday morning is when the check cleared. And Jesus Christ emerged from that tomb and His resurrection flooded everything that He had ever taught with meaning. It showed them this man really is the Son of God. He really does have authority to lay down His life and take it up again and take our sins and to pour out His Spirit upon us. And suddenly at the resurrection morning when they see this, they know this man is the real deal. And He's promised to exalt me He's promised to share His glory with me. I've got an eternal inheritance now that I'm absolutely sure of because I've seen this guy beat death. And now all the stupid stuff that I cling to that clutters up my life that makes me sick and struggle through my everyday life, get it, get rid of it. Because my inheritance is in Him. My wealth, treasure, reputation, honor, and value are found when the check cleared on Sunday morning. It changed things. So what I want to show you as I'm going through the book of Acts trying to prepare for this, and Tom has hit a lot on this, life is mission, and it's not just eternal life, but it's life every day. I want you to see... What happens to the apostles? Where their emphasis is when they launch the ministry. And you're going to see they're absolutely obsessed with the resurrection. You go into a Christian church today and we preach very good messages. We preach that Christ has taken our sin and He's given us His righteousness. We teach morality and ethical lessons and we teach a lot of really good stuff. But we don't preach anywhere near the proportion in the average American church of resurrection that these apostles did. And when the Spirit of God came into that early church and grew their numbers like wildfire, it's because people caught the power of resurrection. 
So follow me. Let's walk through the first bit of Acts. And I just want you to see when they have to pick a new apostle because Judas has killed himself and they're going to pick Matthias. What do they say? One of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. Peter's sermon, which draws 3,000 people saved, generally that's preached in Pentecostal churches, and we focus on this is what the church is going to do. It's going to do incredible miracles, dream dreams. That's a short part of Peter's sermon, eight verses. He goes over the prophecy of Joel. Do you know that he spends 15 verses focusing exclusively on the resurrection? That's where the power of Peter's sermon was. Like in this point where Peter's preaching and he says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. That's the power of this God I follow. And he's alive. And he goes on and he says, hey, David, you can go to his tomb. All the tombs of the kings and prophets, you can go there. You can see their tombs and their dead bodies. But David said concerning him, you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You've made known to me the paths of life and you make me full of gladness with your presence. He continues, he was not abandoned to Hades or hell, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up and of being... And of that, we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. And that is a familiar pattern that I want you to get glued in your mind for this sermon. God was has raised up Jesus and exalted Him at the right hand of God. What does that mean for us? Raised and exalted. So then you get to Acts 3 and and Tom preached on this. It's the story when the apostles are coming into the temple complex. They're passing Solomon's colonnade, which you see off on the right hand side. And they come across this lame man. He's been lame from birth. Everybody's seen him there. He's there every day. And what happens? Peter says, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. Now, don't miss this detail. Think about that. He took him by the right hand and raised him up. Where's he raised to? It's resurrection language. He's raised to the right hand. You're seeing all this imagery of resurrection play out. So then the Jews come after they he's healed this man who's been lame from birth. And they say, hey, how are you having the authority to do this? And Peter and John respond and they say, you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And everybody, all the religious leaders keep getting mad. So what's behind the story that we're going to be in today? It says the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees. And that's important because the the Sadducees were the one sect of Israel who denied the resurrection. They did not believe in the resurrection or the afterlife. So the Sadducees come upon them and they're greatly annoyed. Why? Because they're teaching nice moral messages. Because they say that Jesus was crucified. No. Because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Now stop yourself and ask, why would the teaching of the resurrection be so controversial to these religious leaders? It's because the resurrection, the hope of the resurrection, your inheritance in Christ that goes far beyond this grave that secures your inheritance no matter what another person may do to you allows you to live with open hands. You're more than a conqueror. If they come for you, if they kill you, if they steal your stuff, if they if they shame you, if your reputation is destroyed and the resurrection is true, then all of that stands still for you. Nobody can rob you of that. Your inheritance, your everlasting inheritance. Remember, this life is a vapor. It's here today, gone tomorrow. Your inheritance in the Lord is everlasting. You can live with freedom and the power of the resurrection. And the Sadducees and the religious leaders who want to clamp down all of their religious controls and say, no, 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 if you're going to be one of us, you've got to do this, and you've got to do this, and you've got to do this, and you've got to do this. And if you don't do this, well, then we're going to stone you, we're going to shame you, we're going to do all these incredibly terrible things to you. 
And now all of a sudden, with the hope of the resurrection, you have the early church saying, do to me whatever you want. My inheritance is secure. And they continue to preach, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God has raised from the dead, by him, this man is standing before you well. By his power, they did not heal this lame man. The living and risen Jesus Christ did. He is alive. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord. Are you getting this? Resurrection, kind of a big theme in the early church. Kind of a big deal. So when we get to our passage today, which starts in Acts chapter 5, verse 12, it's right after Ananias and Sapphira. So Ananias and Sapphira lived for this world. They saw this world as all there was and the deadline was running out and they refused to give up their money because they found their security in this world. They refused to believe the resurrection and paid the consequence for it. So then we get to this passage and I just want you to see how absolutely focused, laser-like focused, this passage is drawing our minds to resurrection. So it says, Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. Now Solomon's portico is a really significant place in the Scriptures. This is going to be one where the lame man was healed by the apostles and where Acts 5 takes place. But to give you, before we get into that, I just want to give you a picture of where this is. This is, if you went to first century Israel, this is what it would look like. And there you have the temple complex. The big tall thing is Herod's temple and that's where they would go into the Holy of Holies and everything was in there. Over to the left side, you have the court of the Gentiles. The bottom would be the court of the women. The middle is the court of the men. And back near the temple is the court of the priest. But Solomon's colonnade, if you look at the very bottom, or Solomon's porch, if you look at the very bottom of this photo, you see kind of a walkway right along the wall. Well, that, that rooftop, that walkway, is actually a rooftop over Solomon's portico. And this is where they are. So if you look at the diagram of Herod's temple, you can see all this laid out. And on the far right-hand side, that little walkway-looking thing, that's going to be Solomon's porch or Solomon's portico. And why are they there? To get into the mind of the early apostles, why are they there? It's the same reason why when you go to the airport, you see like a million evangelists of a million different... I always think of the movie Airplane... If you've ever seen that where he's like tackling the the evangelist and flipping over the Hare Krishna guys because they all go to the airport. Why? Because everybody goes to the airport to go wherever they're going and the message spreads. So here you have at Solomon's Colonnade access to the court of the Gentiles. Everybody who goes into the formal temple complex has to go through there. So as they're preaching, everybody hears them and has access to what they're saying. And this would be a view of it from the side. It's a really open, beautiful place, and the apostles go there regularly after the resurrection. They go there in Acts 3, they go there in Acts 5, this is going to be a home. Why is this place so comfortable to them? Because they had history there. If you go to John chapter 9, there's a story of Jesus healing a blind man with mud. And the story is going to sound a bit familiar if you've read through the Acts 5 passage. It's going to sound familiar. Jesus comes to the beautiful gate through Solomon's colonnade. He finds a man who's blind from birth. He scoops up mud. He rubs it in his eyes. It's like he's the creator. He's scooping up the dust of the ground just like he made Adam. He's making all things new in this man's eyes. And he heals this man. And the man can see again. And he runs and rejoices And the religious leaders sound familiar yet. And the religious leaders come and they say, hey, 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 you can't do this. By what power do you do this? And so Jesus is standing in Solomon's portico, the same place the apostles love to congregate. And he delivers his magnum opus on the resurrection. And John 10, he's going to say, I have authority to lay down my life and I have authority to take it up again. And he's going to go on. And you see here, he was walking through the colonnade of Solomon. And the religious leaders come and say, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. 
And there he is in a, a famous painting. And he goes on after that and says, My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. And it's the most radical statement that Jesus to this point in his ministry has said. I and the Father are one. I have authority to take up my life again. And he's basically responding to their question, are you the Christ? And he says, not only am I the Christ, I'm going to destroy death. I'm going to raise up my life. I and the Father are one. And he gives them this answer and they pick up stones again to stone him. And Jesus said, whoa, whoa, whoa. I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? Now, if you're an apostle who's doing these things and being persecuted in the early church, you can kind of see why they like this place. For example, when when John and Peter respond to the apostles, they or to the religious leaders, they say, rulers and people of the elders, if we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, they use the same argument as Jesus. By what means this man has been healed? Let it be known that by the name of Jesus Christ, whom you crucified, whom God has raised from the dead, by him, this man is standing well before you. And the Jews answered him, it's not a good, it's not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man make yourself God. And again they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. It's almost an identical story to what happens in Acts chapter 3, verse 5. The apostles see this, they know this, they find comfort in knowing that they are walking in the footsteps of Christ. And so we now we get back to this passage. They're in Solomon's colonnade, which, by the way, side note, just really everything about this is screaming resurrection. And the book of Hosea, who's, who's the first prophet to write, um, right along with Jonah, he, Hosea says, and when Hosea says this, the whole book has been about the judgment of Israel, but when he comes to the end, he begins to scream and sing Resurrection. And he utters this, these famous words. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, hell or grave, where is your victory? Those are the lines that Paul is going to pick up. When Paul writes his great chapter on resurrection, he picks that up and that's the punchline climax of how death in this life has no power over the Christian because Christ has conquered it all. And now together we can mock death. Death, where's your sting? Hell, where is your victory? Bring it on. I'm in Christ. You have nothing on me. And Hosea gives Paul that line and he goes into the next chapter and he describes what the resurrection, the one who brings resurrection is going to look like. And he says that he will be like a cedar who plants down into the ground and the cedar being the tallest tree, the the Lebanons, the cedars of Lebanon, they, they used to believe, the Sumerians believed that the gods dwelled in those trees. The Egyptians used the resin of the of the cedars for, for mummification. And then Hosea goes on and says that, and it will blossom like a lily. And that makes no sense. A cedar can't blossom into a lily. But if you were to go to Solomon's colonnade, you'd see all these columns made of cedars that go to the ground and the tops are capitals that blossom into lilies. And so even the architecture of the temple where they are is declaring and proclaiming resurrection. And so they're here, and it says, Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in this place, Solomon's portico. But none of the rest dared to join them. But the people held them in high esteem. So here's this inner circle, and they all come together in Solomon's portico, but nobody else wanted to go in. Why? Were they afraid of the religious leaders? Probably. But my guess is that they were afraid of the Lord a lot more. If you go back and you look at Acts chapter 5 and the beginning of it, what happens? Ananias and Sapphira try to pretend like they're in the inner circle. Like they truly buy into the resurrection and they're giving their whole life everything they have. And it costs them their life. And I think that the people of Israel, the people of Jerusalem, see that 
And they're like, man, I love what's going on, but I like it from over here. They don't want to be on the inside because being on the inside, being aggressive for the Lord is costly. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. So they even carried out the sick into the streets. They don't go into the temple complex because that's the dangerous place. So they lay them on the streets and lay them on cots and mats that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. And God is good to these people. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits. And they were all healed, not some or most All healed. You know, we read like in the apologetics argument, we get into this idea like, can you prove the resurrection? Well, there was no empty tomb. If there was an empty, if if the resurrection wasn't true, then all they had to do was present an empty body. And you get into all these arguments for the resurrection. If the resurrection weren't true, if the account of Luke and Acts is not true, there would have been scores of thousands of people who could have come forward and say, that never happened. Thousands of people, thousands of people had their lives radically changed in the, in the book of Acts. So it goes on and it says that the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, the resurrection deniers, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in jail. And during the night, now pay attention to this, and during the night, an angel of the Lord opened up the prison doors and brought them out and said, go Stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. It's like God came to them and said, I am not done with you. Get up, go out and continue to preach this life. Well, what is this life? It's the same as we're talking about life as mission. It's the laying of everything down for the sake of Christ. It's pointing them to a better way, a way that is not stuck in slavery. You know, if we're honest, one of the things I love about this church is that we are vulnerable, that we're authentic. You come to the pastoral leadership in this church and there's there's not a great deal of judgment. There's no shaming. There's... There's authenticity. There's a recognition that we are all broken and that we're all stumbling. You know, as a dad, as a husband, I have my failings. I come to worship when I come home. I like the idea of coming home and just relaxing. And then there's my wife who deserves my attention and my kids yanking on my pant legs and the finances and everything else. And all these pressures just jump on your shoulders and they drive you into the ground. And it makes life hard. It makes it really easy to lash out and to say, I don't want to do this anymore and I'm going to figure out a way to get what I want and I'm going to neglect everything over here. And why do we do that? Why do we feel the need to do that? It's because at our very innermost, our most corrupt flesh driven, we want everything here and now. And so we trample what's important, including the Lord, including our families, in pursuit of idle time, money, prestige, power, chasing a dream. It's crazy. And Jesus is saying, no, get up out of this prison. Go and teach these people. Preach about this new life that I have secured for them. They no longer need to feel enslaved by all the things of this world that like gaff hooks into your flesh, yank you down and destroy your marriages and destroy your relationship with your kids as fathers. And they sink your soul and they burden your spirituality and they leave you in these dry spells where you feel so distant from the Lord because you've got so many other things clouding your vision that you can't even see Him. And Jesus is coming to these apostles and saying, go out and tell these people who are hurting, who are enslaved to all this stuff, to let go because there is a newness of life. It's there waiting for them to take hold of it. And so they leave 
And they enter the temple at daybreak, remember that, and they begin to teach. And now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, the Sanhedrin, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought out. But when the officers came, they did not find him in prison. So they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now, for a moment, I want you to realize God is doing something really cool here. This whole time they've been preaching and preaching and preaching and preaching about the resurrection, the resurrection, the resurrection, the resurrection. And the Sadducees and the religious leaders say, I've had enough. Put these men in jail, lock them up, station guards. They are not to go around and teach in the name of Christ about this resurrection. And what happens? Gee, this is going to sound familiar. God, despite the fact that guards stand at this securely locked location, God sends an angel to open it and to bring out his servant. And the guards are perplexed. It sounds an awful lot like the resurrection, doesn't it? You can imagine that when these guards come... Now, this is this is within the same time period. It's the same players. It's Caiaphas. It's Annas. It's the high priest. It's the people who shouted, crucify him. It's the ones who schemed and wanted to make sure that there were guards outside the sealed tomb of Christ who got the report from the guards. Man, we, I don't know what happened. We guarded it, but it's empty. Who are now hearing those same... The same priests now have the guards coming to them saying, "Um, it happened again. And you know the Sadducees have to be shaking in their boots and God is showing them His resurrection power. And when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed, I would imagine so about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, look, the men who you put in prison are standing in the temple and they're teaching the people. And the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And here you have the great differences of perspective. It's quite stunning. If you read this and you try to put yourself in the mind of these priests, What have they just seen? They've seen miracle after miracle. Tons of people, hundreds of people bringing their sick and cots and mats. All of them being healed. They've seen this lame man who's been at the temple that they pass by every day. Who's now walking, jumping, leaping, praising God. They've seen that the apostles come out of a sealed jail with no one recognizing it. They have seen miracle after miracle after miracle of God showing up and doing mighty things in the name of resurrection. And they were afraid of being stoned by the people. Isn't it stunning that that line doesn't say, and they were terrified of the Lord. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They denied it at all costs. So their perspective is entirely on the things of this world. And so they call the apostles in. And when they brought them in, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this man's name. And yet here you fill Jerusalem with your teaching. And you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Which is ironic, because what are they screaming before Christ's crucifixion? Crucify him. Let his blood be on us and our children. And now that the apostles point that out, they say, these guys are trying to pretend like we're guilty of this man's blood. They're full of lies. But Peter and the apostles flip the religious leaders. They're not scared of man. They're not scared of the things of this world. And they say, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. And God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. And when they heard this, 
They were enraged and wanted to kill him. And let me tell you something. I want you to get this perspective. There is something incredibly powerful about preaching the resurrection and exaltation of Christ. The Christ that exists and reigns in power and glory in heaven today is not the Christ we see in the Gospels. He is no longer the servant who comes to empty himself out, though he is for his people humble and gentle. And He rejoices over you with singing. But now that He is seated at the right hand of power, this Savior is glorious. He is magnificent, radiating holiness. His eyes are like blazing fire. This God is so incredibly powerful. This is who Peter points them to. You killed him. God raised him up. And now he's the one that all the prophets talked about. The one that will eventually bring judgment. He's that powerful guy. He's exalted to the right hand of God. And let me tell you, there's a familiar pattern in Scripture. You want to get killed? Connect resurrection, exaltation, done done deal in Scripture. Let me show you. This is Jesus' more or less last defense in his trial. When the high priest comes to him and says, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you're the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said, you have said so, but I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tears his robes and says, he's uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You've now heard his blasphemy. What's your judgment? And they all answered, He deserves death. Or get to Stephen, who's going to be the first martyr in the church that we'll hear about in a couple of weeks. And Stephen says, after he's given this long diatribe against the religious leaders and he's called them, he's called them stiff-necked people. He's called them uncircumcised of ear and heart. And they, they're okay with that. They're mad. They're gnashing their teeth. But then he goes on and adds this. Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And with that, they cry out with a loud voice. They stop their ears and together they rush at Him and they cast Him out of the city and stoned Him. There is something about the resurrection and exaltation that people can't tolerate. You know, the book of Acts tells us that the Spirit was at work. Why? Because of the preaching of the resurrection. And the exaltation of Christ. The belief that the church functioned not in its own strength, but that the living Christ by the power of the Spirit enabled everything that we do. And it grew like wildfire because the people back then understood that they were weak vessels. They didn't put on masks and pretend that they had their own strength. They emptied themselves, poured themselves out, knew their inheritance was to come, and allowed Christ to dwell in them by the power of the Spirit to change things. And that drove the religious leaders crazy because you can't take that away from a person. It is a liberty that cannot be stolen. It's in your heart. It's nothing material in this world that you can cling to. And so here's just an interesting little factoid, because this doesn't stop with the Bible. This is Jerusalem, as you probably know. At the bottom, you see the dome, which is the church of the Holy Sepulchre, where Jesus is raised from the dead and crucified. It's built over that hill. And then in the distance, you see the Dome of the Rock. And the Dome of the Rock was built. It's a Muslim shrine. And it was built to commemorate their belief in the 600s that Muhammad ascended into heaven at night to Allah. So they build this Dome of the Rock because in the 600s, the Muslims waged this vicious campaign and they went all throughout the Holy Land and they put countless and countless people to death. They slaughtered Christians by the boatload. They took the land, they settled in the land, and then they built this shrine to honor Muhammad. And the crazy thing about it is if you look inside that shrine, there's an inscription that goes all the way around and it's over a colonnade, which makes it a little bit more interesting. The inscription goes all the way around the inside of the Dome of the Rock. You know what it's about? Jesus. Here's a shrine to memorialize Muhammad and the inside of it is all about Jesus. It's like that old saying, methinks they protest too much. If Muhammad is really that powerful, 
Why not devote it to Muhammad? But inside, listen, listen to some of what it says. Oh, people of the book, which is what Muslims called the early Christians. People of the book. It's a pretty cool title. Do not exaggerate in your religion. The Messiah, Jesus, son of Mary, was only a messenger of God. So believe in God and his messengers and do not say three. This Jesus is no God. Far be it removed from his transcendent majesty that he should have a son. Peace be on him, that is Jesus, the day he was born, the day he died, and the day he shall be raised alive. Thicket. They get one chance to build this memorial to the ascended Muhammad, right? And they're so aggravated by Christianity that they devote the entire inside of this thing to denouncing the divine Son of God's status of Jesus, His resurrection, and His exaltation. Why? Why do you think they would be so obsessed and infatuated with this that they would do that? It's because, in a nutshell, as they're going through and they're wiping out and they're conquering Christians all throughout the Middle East, they are so thoroughly frustrated. The name Islam means submission. And guess what? They could take their land. They could take their money. They could take their family. They could take everything they wanted. But in these stubborn Christians was this belief that this place is not their home, that they have a greater inheritance, that Jesus is raised from the dead, that He has divine authority alongside God because He's the Son of God. And these Christians could be killed and mowed down and beaten, but they could not be conquered. And it so aggravated them that they devote this memorial to Muhammad to Jesus. Phenomenal. So this, they're saying, we need to kill these guys, but at this moment in the book of Acts, chapter 5, a Pharisee stands up. Gamaliel, he's going to be the guy that's going to train Paul. And he says, he's, he's held in honor by all the people. He stood up and gave orders for the men, the apostles, to stand outside for a while. And he said, hey, men of Israel, take care for what you're about to do with these men. Before these days, Theodos stood up, claiming to be somebody. A number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed. All of those who were following him dispersed and came to nothing. Next, after him came Judas, the Galilean, who arose up in the days of the census, and he drew some of the people away after him. He too perished, and all who were following him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone, for if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it's of God, you'll not be able to overthrow them. It's a prophetic nugget of wisdom for you. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And what Gamaliel is saying, Theodos stood up, killed, following dispersed. Judas stood up, killed, following dispersed. Jesus stood up, killed. And if he remains dead, his following will disperse. And today around the world, how many Christians are there? On every continent, this movement has just spread like crazy. And when they called in the apostles, they beat them. That's literally flogged in the Greek. And what's a flog? It means a cat of nine tails with shards of glass and, and metal. And they're whipping them. And in Roman tradition, if this is the same, it's 39 lashes, which if you count it up with the nine, nine tails on this thing hitting you 39 times, it means you have 351 gashes in your back. Your back looks like a plate of spaghetti when they're done with you. And listen to this. And they charged him not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they had been counted worthy to suffer dishonor for his name. Rejoicing. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. There is nothing, no torment, no pain, no threat of death, no nothing that could steal from them the preciousness of Jesus. And that was the power of Jesus' resurrection and exaltation that led them to be willing to trade everything. So I've got a question for you. You've seen those game shows, right? Where at the end, if you answer enough questions right, you get to go into this little room and it's like a glass box and it blows around money. And you get like a certain amount of time and as much money as you can grab while you're in there, you get to keep it. So now let me use this metaphor as, as life. 
Suppose you're on your way in there and somebody says, you've got two minutes. Go in this room and grab everything you can. And you can, it can be thousand dollar bills. If you're somebody who just needs time and space, it could be time. It could be your job, your reputation, your glory, whatever. You're just grabbing at it as fast as you can in the two minutes you have and then gone. So you're ready to go. You're thinking, okay, you get in there and the, the things start blowing all over the place. And then right in the middle of that, as you're stressing out to grab as much as you can and to secure it, to go back and grab as much more as you can. At that moment, your wife or husband is thrown into the mix. And as you're furiously trying to grab it, she comes and says, Sam, can we talk? And then all of a sudden, while you're trying to deal with that and figure out how to address this and still be grabbing, your little kids come in and they're tugging on your pant like, Daddy, 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 let's wrestle. And then your job calls and your email on your iPhone is going ding, 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 ding. And you're in there trying to grab as much as you can because you only have two minutes. And then other people come in and they're all broken and their lives are a mess and they start clutching and their wives come in and their kids come in and everybody in there is so much in a panic and so miserable clutching in these two minutes for whatever they can get their hands on that the whole thing is a pitiful sight. Now imagine before you step foot in this thing that the Lord comes to you and pulls you aside and says, Sam... I want you to know, no matter how much you grab in there, over there, you see that? It's an infinite, everlasting treasure trove of all the wealth, honor, rest, peace, love, glory. It's never-ending. It's right there for when you get out of this money tank. Go ahead. How does that change the way you live in there? Now it's no longer, get out of my way, woman. You know, it's at this point, it's, man, I've got an eternal inheritance that is secured by the resurrection and exaltation of Christ. It's all mine. And now I'm freed up for when my wife comes to me and says, hey, honey, I need some of your time that I can let the machines blow around a while and focus on my true treasure that God has given me. And when my kids come to me, it's not a matter of hoarding my time because I know I've got plenty of that coming and rest. Oh, it's coming. And I need to focus on my true treasure now. But if you don't believe in the resurrection as a father, (laughs) as a husband, as an employee... You will go through this life miserably trying to snatch up all the stuff that won't last beyond the grave anyway. Death grabs at you in a million different ways every day. When you shun your wife, when you shun your kids, when you cut corners, when you continue in addiction, when you continue with pornography, it pollutes your soul, it clamps onto you and brings death. And Jesus' resurrection is not just for when your body's in a coffin. It's for now. That's why He calls you to die daily. Why? Because you're risen daily. Let that stuff go. And it's a hard lesson to learn. You can ask my... I'm sure my wife is over there going... But I know it. And I need to center my thoughts on the resurrection because if I try to be a good husband in my own strength, I'm a total failure. And I'm a failure a lot. And that's why my eyes need to be there. You know, Paul, who was trained up by Gamaliel, like I'll say, and I'll close with this passage because it's probably one of my very favorite passages in Scripture, Philippians 3. He just gets done saying, everything I had, I was a Pharisee, I'm a Roman citizen, I'm trained up in wealth, my parents have money, everything is handed to Paul on a silver platter. Jesus confronts him. The risen Christ confronts him. And it says that he left everything. He counted it all as loss. He says it's rubbish. And in the Greek, that word is scubulon. It literally means it's sewage. I think of everything that I left as sewage as compared to knowing Christ. 
Get it away from me. If it's going to hinder me growing closer to Christ and achieving and grabbing hold of more of my inheritance by faith, get it away. And he goes on and he says, I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain resurrection from the dead. And here's the deal. You're going to have sufferings by necessity. If you're going to keep your eyes on the heavenly and let go of the earthly, that's going to introduce some suffering. A godly life will have suffering. And he goes on and he says, For as I've often told you, and as now I say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. And their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things. Here's Paul saying, the person who can only see this far and is in that money tank just for the sake of the money tank, their God, their appetite, their daily need is their God. But then he looks to us and says, but our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a Savior from there who's risen, exalted, and powerful. The Lord Jesus Christ who by the power that enables Him to bring everything, including all of your circumstances, everything under His control, He will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like His glorious body. Your inheritance is coming Do not live this life squandering the gifts that God has given you to focus on the things that God, that you can't take with you. It's only what you invest in Christ and the belief of His resurrection that you will take with you to heaven. John Piper had a a little magnet on his fridge and it said this, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. That's because of the resurrection. Father, Lord, I thank You so much. Man, I thank You for Your resurrection power. The fact that our hope exists and goes beyond this life. We are not to live with clenched fists on everything that You've given us and to strive after all the petty things of this world. But we're to live with open hands knowing that our charity, our love, our investment of time and money and resources, even the investment of our sufferings, Lord, that You will reward us with an inheritance that cannot be shaken. You're amazing. We love You. And Lord, I pray for everybody in this congregation, for those who are suffering, for those who walk in the darkness carrying burdens that they were never meant to carry, for those with struggling marriages, For those that are locked up in addiction that they can't feel any release from, Lord, I pray that Your Spirit would come into their life and give them a taste of the power of Your exaltation and resurrection and breathe into them new life this day. Help us to be a church that receives the broken and like Peter, extends our right hand to raise them up. In Christ's name, Amen.